Welcome to the Venture to Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Perhaps the film's greatest achievement is that it sparked a very needed discussion of nuclear war and nuclear weapons. That was Professor Peter Kuznick, Professor of History and the Director of Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He's the author of many books and collaborator with Oliver Stone on the highly acclaimed Showtime documentary series, The Untold History of the United States. And you will hear more from Peter as he joined the Veterans for Peace No Nukes Working Group meeting last Friday. But before that... My name is Jim Wolkemuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacific Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that it is shared across the country. So if you think that this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And if you think the work that Veterans for Peace tries to do, then go to our site, veteransforpeace.org, and do the same thing. While mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. Today, we were so fortunate. We're going to share the meeting that the No Nukes group had with Peter Kuznick last week. And Peter Kuznick is going to be one of the speakers at the Veterans for Peace convention, which starts tomorrow. And if you haven't registered, go to veteransforpeace.org and register. So we were very fortunate to have him on to talk and get his wisdom with regard to the movie Oppenheimer. Yes, we're going to talk about Oppenheimer again because Peter brings a uh, not only a knowledge of the movie, but a knowledge of the history that goes into the movie. And he points out some really good things that were done in the movie, and he also points out some deficiencies. And so with that, let's get going. I've been thinking and writing about nuclear war and nuclear issues for several decades now. In 1995, I began the Nuclear Studies Institute. That was the 50th anniversary of the atomic bombings. And one of my students, whose grandfather was killed in Hiroshima, and her mother and grandmother survived the bombing, She and I decided we were going to do something major to commemorate the 50th anniversary. Uh, We were going to teach classes at American University, as well as bring students to Hiroshima and Kyoto to commemorate the events. While we were planning that, the Smithsonian canceled the Enola Gay exhibit. So the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki asked if we would bring 
some of the artifacts that were supposed to go to the Smithsonian to American University. And that's how we kicked off my Nuclear Studies Institute with the first exhibit that Hiroshima and Nagasaki ever did outside of Japan in 1995. We did a second exhibit in 2015, uh, which was even a bigger one. Then I guess what else I should say is that a decade ago, Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, did a 12-part, 12-hour documentary film series and a series of books titled The Untold of the United States, which revolves quite a bit around nuclear history. Now, that's uh, you know enough about me for starters, but I want to say that the book that this movie is based on was written by two close friends of mine, Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird. The book is American Prometheus. I hope some of you have read it. It's a terrific book. I think it was published in 2005, and it won the Pulitzer Prize, which it definitely deserved. Now, other filmmakers before Christopher Nolan had taken a crack at this. Some pretty renowned filmmakers had actually commissioned it or thought about it, and uh, including my friend Oliver Stone. Oliver knew Marty and Kai. We've had numerous dinners with them over the years. And Oliver looked at the book and said he couldn't figure out how to do it, said it was too complicated. But when he saw the Nolan film, he, he wrote to me and wrote and issued publicly a statement that Christopher Nolan did it brilliantly, that he figured out how to do it in a way that really captured the book and Oppenheimer in all of his complexity and introduced a lot of very important history. Now, Oliver took issue with some of the points of historical interpretation or some of the things that were not included in the movie. But in Oliver's mind, that did not diminish its importance or its impact. And I agree with Oliver about that. So I want to start off by talking about some of the things that I really like about this movie. Before we get into the criticism, it's a compelling three-hour movie that is filled with dialogue and information and history. And I've spoken to lots of people who have seen this. I've given a lot of talks and interviews about it. And I haven't heard anyone say it was boring. Everybody I've spoken to says that they really love the movie, especially those who are not experts in nuclear history. So I think that that's much to its credit that Nolan was able to do that, that he was able to do it in a compelling way, in a way that was visually arresting and that was highly educational. People who don't know the history learned a lot from this movie, most of which is quite accurate and much of which is true to the book. But it's, I think, a 700-page book. And how do you get 700 pages even into a three-hour Hollywood movie? But for a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, and, and we've seen the other films that have been done, or some of you have seen them, beginning in 1947, the MGM movie, The Beginning or the End. And then a few years later, a movie about Captain Paul Tibbetts, Above and Beyond. Or more recently, the movie Truman, and the based on David McCullough. You know, I'm not a big fan of David McCullough's 
history or his treatment of Truman, uh, and that completely distorts a lot of this history, or the movie um, Fat Man and Little Boy, in which Paul Newman plays Leslie Groves and steals the movie from Dwight Schultz. It was intended as an anti-nuclear movie, but in, in the end, you can hardly tell that because of Leslie Groves' domination of Robert Oppenheimer. And right before this, MSNBC came out with a documentary about this title to end all wars, Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb. I don't know if any of you saw that, but it's terrible. It's a complete distortion of history. It's real myth-making. And so Nolan, to his credit, largely avoids that. And what he, I think the directing is, is brilliant. I think the acting is excellent. The editing, the cinematography, everything about this film from a filmmaking standpoint, I found to be first rate. Anne Hornaday, one of my favorite reviewers for the Washington Post, who has interviewed Oliver and me on a couple of times, said that, talked about the Oppenheimer character. And she says, the tragic figure at the movie's core, Oppenheimer, brought to fascinatingly paradoxical life by Cillian Murphy. Uh, and I felt, thought that he did a very, very good job. Now, Matt Damon's presentation of Leslie Groves, that's the warmest and fuzziest and most likable portrayal of Leslie Groves that one is ever going to see. In most Hollywood movies, Leslie Groves is meant to be the villain. Here, it's like a buddy movie. He and Oppenheimer are friends, and they work together to build the bomb. Who is Leslie Groves in reality? He and Oppenheimer were polar opposites in every way. Groves was a big, fat, 250, 300-pound bully. You know, Oppenheimer starts off the Manhattan Project weighing, he's about six feet tall. He weighs 125 pounds. By the end of the project, he's down to below 115 pounds. They were opposites. Groves didn't drink. He was a teetotaler. Oppenheimer drank like a fish. Groves was politically conservative. Oppenheimer was effectively a communist. In fact, I think they downplay Oppenheimer's politics when in discussing the 1930s and early 40s. Oppenheimer said he was a member of every left-wing front group on the West Coast. He gave one-tenth of his salary every month to the Communist Party to support the Republican cause in Spain. His girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, who's played by Florence Hugh, was a member of the Communist Party. His next, his wife, Kitty, was a member of the Communist Party. Her ex-husband, one of her ex-husbands, had been killed in Spain fighting for the Republic. His brother and his brother's wife were members of the Communist Party. Almost all of his graduate students were members of the Communist Party. So if Oppenheimer was not a card-carrying member, it was because he didn't need to be. He went to the meetings, he gave the money, he effectively mouthed the communist line, he'd read all of Marx and Lenin and, and Engels. Uh, I mean, he really was in every way a, you know, we don't know if he was a card-carrying member, but he was in spirit and his heart a member of the Communist Party. And I think that it even gets downplayed a little bit in the movie. But Leslie Groves, who was the opposite, 
And Leslie Groves also was working in the field at an early age. Oppenheimer came from this totally pampered background with, with French maids, with um, paintings on the wall by Van Gogh and Cezanne and Matisse, apartments on the Upper East Side, vacationing another home on Long Island, vacationing in Europe, his own yacht, his own ponies, totally pampered. Uh, Leslie Groves came a hard scrabble background. And, but Leslie Groves was very mean-spirited. He was not Matt Damon. Leslie Groves, his assistant, said Groves was the, he was the biggest son of a bitch I ever met. I hated his guts, and so did everybody else. You wouldn't know that. And the tension between the scientists, on the one hand, and the military was palpable. In fact, they gave them all nicknames to use, and, and they wanted compartmentalization. Oppenheimer insisted that the people who had the college degrees should be allowed to meet and discuss the ideas. In some ways, the film downplays the way in which this was a collaborative effort on the part of the scientists. But one time, Groves comes into Oppenheimer's office and says to Oppenheimer, I don't want you wearing that pork pie hat anymore. It makes you too identifiable. Oppenheimer says, okay. And the next time Groves comes in, Oppenheimer's wearing a full Indian headdress. And he says, I'm going to wear this till the end of the war. You know, there's a lot of tension between the scientists and the military. And one of them would found a hole in the barbed wire fencing and would go out through the, would go out through the hole and walk in through the front gate past the guards and wave to them every time. So the scientists were always doing what they could to antagonize the military. And some of that does not come a lot, come around across either. The film also does a very good job in capturing the intellectual excitement of the 1920s. You've got Oppenheimer and the scientific revolution, the quantum revolution. They're going and studying in Cambridge, in Leiden, in Göttingen, with the great scientists of the world. They capture that excitement. And also the modernism, uh, Stravinsky and Picasso and T.S. Eliot and that world. It was actually much more vibrant than I think the film captures, but at least it makes some attempt to do so to its credit. The film also showcases the McCarthyite red baiting. You might say that McCarthy's an easy target. Now everybody, other than Donald Trump and uh, his friend Roy Cohn, you know, and even the Republicans uh, now condemn McCarthyism. So it's an easy target, but it does a good job of it and shows the dangers of red baiting, shows the sickness of that kind of anti-communism in the 50s. Uh, and it comes at an important time because we're going through that again. We're going through red baiting again. Anybody who's critical of the U.S. unlimited military support for Ukraine now is being red baited as a Putin, you know, apologist, uh, as being soft. You know, so that's coming back again. I think it's important to remind the public of how ugly that destructive that was. Uh, and the film focuses in large part on the 1954 hearing, which is shown in color. And that's the security hearing, which Oppenheimer loses security clearance. And then it shows the 1959 hearing in which uh, Louis Strauss, 
who's uh, who's the bad guy in this movie instead of Groves, Louis Straws, who starts off as an itinerant shoe salesman, ends up being an investment banker, then becomes the head of the Atomic Energy Commission. Straws was a vicious anti-communist and red baiter, and he's the one who goes after Oppenheimer and along with William Borden, and they take away Oppenheimer's security clearance. And so I think the fact that it shows that is very, very important, and I give it a lot of credit for that. And I think that that is also very timely now. Uh, one of the things that it does very well is it shows Oppenheimer as a complicated and tormented character. Marty and Kai do a very good job of that in the biography. But the fact that Nolan does that, I think, is, is quite effective. And it shows his, his youth. It shows him when he gets criticized by British, the British later Nobel Prize winning physicist P.M.S. Blackett for his lousy laboratory techniques, injecting uh, cyanide into the apple. And then that scene there, they show Oppenheimer rushing back and rescuing Niels Bohr from eating the apple. Niels Bohr wasn't involved in that. I don't know why they put that one in there, but it was still, and it shows Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer tried to strangle his friend when his friend said that he was in love and wanted to get married. And Oppenheimer had suicidal tendencies and struggled with bouts of depression and was always very, very conflicted. And I think the film shows that well also. Uh, Martin Jones wrote a review of the book American Prometheus in 2005 in Newsweek. And he said, Oppenheimer's life does not influence us, it haunts us. And, and I think the film captures that in, in some real sense, that it shows Oppenheimer as a tormented figure, as an anguished figure, as somebody who felt a lot of guilt over his involvement in the bomb project. And the thing about Oppenheimer uh, is that he succeeds where he should have failed. And, you know, he uses his charisma, his brilliance, his personality, his talent to create, to help create the bomb. Uh, unfortunately, you know, that was, that's his crowning achievement. Whereas he later starts to feel some qualms about that. And the movie shows that, and I think in some ways the movie probably exaggerates that. Shows Oppenheimer as more tormented over what he did uh, and what he failed to achieve later. Uh, Christopher Nolan made some interesting comments. He was later asked, he said, in, wrote in his production notes, he said, like it or not, J. Robert Oppenheimer is the most important person who ever lived. I don't know if that makes Leslie Groves the second most important person who ever lived or Edward Teller, but that's what Nolan felt. And uh, when he was asked to explain, he said in an interview, in Hollywood, we're not afraid of a little hype. Do I genuinely believe it? Absolutely. Because if my worst fears are true, he'll be the man who destroyed the world. Who's more important than that? He gave the world the power to destroy itself. No one has done that before. That was the vision that Nolan took into this film. This idea that Oppenheimer was the most important man who ever lived because he made possible 
the atomic bomb, which holds out the possibility that the world can destroy itself, which we grapple with. And it has a really brilliant ending there, which I appreciate. It's totally apocryphal for what I know. Uh, but he has Einstein uh, and Oppenheimer, and they, and they show that scene several times, but they don't really explain it till the very end. And they say, and Oppenheimer, and they say back and forth that maybe they did succeed in destroying the world. And that's something we can't know but we can all do our best to make sure it doesn't happen. But also, to the film's credit, uh, it shows this conflict at Oppenheimer. My friend Robert J. Lifton wrote, Oppenheimer's greatest tragedy was the success of his leadership in the creation of the weapon. His remarkable gifts as physicist, as a human being, were most realized in the building of a weapon that could lead to the destruction of humankind. Oppenheimer himself says, in some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin. And this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. So I think that so a lot of that comes across. But uh, Einstein commented that he thought that Oppenheimer subjecting himself to that kangaroo court, that security hearing, was not only a mistake, but he, he said in Yiddish, Oppenheimer is a nar. He said Oppenheimer is a fool for subjecting himself in that way to that security hearing in a way that he could not win. The film shows him and has Kitty comment that no matter, even if you let them tar and feather you, you're never going to be able to overcome your guilt. You know, so maybe that's part of what it was. Uh, but in any case, perhaps the film's greatest achievement is that it sparked a very needed discussion of nuclear war and nuclear weapons. We haven't had that discussion in a real public way in this country since the 1980s. We haven't had it since Reykjavik, really. Uh, we had it in 1982 with the march in Central Park. We had it in the debates in the 1980s. We had it in The Day After and Threads and Testament and the, those movies that came out. But we haven't had it for more than four decades or for four decades. And this film has triggered it. Uh, and I give it a lot of credit. Other things have also led to that awareness again. We've got Putin's nuclear saber rattling. We've got the tragic death of my dear friend, Dan Ellsberg, who was in many ways America's conscience when it came to nuclear weapons. We've had it with the 60th anniversary recently of the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which triggered a lot of discussion. We've had it very recently with the 60th anniversary of Jack Kennedy's uh, commencement address at American University, which I think was the most important presidential address of the 20th century. So there's been other things that have contributed, but this movie has sparked more of a discussion than anything else. And Nolan said, when I first started writing Oppenheimer, I remember clearly a conversation I had with one of my teenage sons, where I told him that I was working on what I was working on. And he literally said to me, well, nobody really worries about nuclear weapons anymore. Are people going to be interested in that? 
And I, there's a lot of truth to that, sadly. You might take my students. They're very concerned about climate change as an existential threat. They're extremely knowledgeable about that. They're very knowledgeable and sensitive to gender issues, to racial issues. But when it comes to nuclear war, unlike the students a couple decades ago, they are not really concerned. And they say, well, we've had this threat, we've lived with this threat for 78 years, and it hasn't happened. So they're not gonna, it's not gonna happen now. Well, sadly, they're wrong. Sadly, that reality exists. Sadly, there's good reason why the bullying atomic scientist has moved the hands of the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight in 2017, after we almost went to war over Korea, then to 90 seconds before midnight in 2020, and this year to well, 100 seconds before midnight in 2020, and 90 seconds before midnight this year. I would move it a lot closer. The danger over Ukraine, the possibility of war with China over Taiwan, things we can talk about, have really made that danger greater than ever. So, Harvey, we're listening to Professor Peter Kuznick. When he visited our No Nukes group on Friday, he has been just very positive about the movie and very positive about accuracy and what the movie did. I couldn't help but chuckle when he talked about how the the scientists were always getting the officers' goats. Um, yeah. I can yeah. remember um, it was always good to get an officer's goat. No, well, I'm sorry, Harvey, you were an officer. Uh, that's right. <laughs> okay, well, never, never yeah. mind. The, the other officers saw me more as a goat than an officer. <laughs> <laughs> goat officer. You saw the movie and went to the theater. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, went to the premiere of the movie. It was a co-premiere with Barbie. And uh, it was at several theaters in the Charleston area. The theater we went to is in a working class, you know, it's the kind of place that, you know, has just sort of nondescript types of uh, little strip malls with, you know, fast food and pizza places, not Starbucks, not, you know, coffee houses and that sort of thing. So we went to the premiere. Theater was packed. We'd been to see other movies there, Marvel movies and things like that. And typically, uh, there's a lot of coming and going where people are going back to uh, refill their uh, bottomless popcorns and stuff like that and bathroom runs and whatever else. And, you know, some chatter sometimes. This this was a packed house. Three hours I didn't see a single person get up out of their seat. <clears throat> and usually someone gets up and leaves. You can tell because the door lets a little light in, you know. People were li literally uh, riveted by this film. And it was a young crowd, predominantly uh, kids that I would say are either high school or or uh, maybe, you know, a couple of years post high school, you know, late teens, early 20s. I mean, that was by far the majority in this crowd. When I left the film, the other thing I noticed was everyone was filing out of this theater and through the lobby, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, there was none of that typical cutting up and chatter and all that. I thought about that when I uh, got home because the movie, the film really affected me pretty deeply. I, I think Peter Kuznick's assessment and mine are pretty close on that effect. He brilliantly... Uh, 
conveyed what I was hoping to see from that film, which was the existential threat of this weapon to our survival. That final scene that Peter Kuznick talks about, he doesn't quote it. And uh, the words are very important because it's where uh, Oppenheimer is with Einstein there at, uh, in Princeton down by this pond. It's just the two of them. And uh, earlier when they were trying to develop the Trinity bomb, he had mentioned to Einstein that a member of the team had said, you know, we've been doing these calculations and, you know, the heat generated by this, there's a possibility that that could destabilize our atmosphere and and we could have a chain reaction that is uncontrollable and destroys our entire atmosphere and kills everyone. And he's talking to Einstein about this and Einstein remembers that and said, well, what of it? You know, because they went ahead and did the test anyway, because they calculated it was a minuscule risk. And what Oppenheimer said is, I think we did. We did start something mm-hmm. that's going to end in the destruction of all life on this planet. And not not immediately, not right then. But he was referring to seeing what it, where it's going to go from there. He knew yeah. that just the natural progress of this was going to be ever-increasing lethalities of these weapons. When you develop one, then you look for a way to develop one that's even more powerful, and then another one even more powerful than that. Of course, and we're the, still doing it today. In the arms race, which uh, resulted, which he he also understood was going to was going to happen. So, so I went home and I, uh, I said, you know, I wrote an editorial, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Charleston paper, Post and Courier, that if anybody's interested in. Hearing that, we you read that on the air uh, a couple of shows ago. Okay, yeah. So and and they can uh, get that on going by going to SoundCloud and searching "Veterans for Peace." My takeaway from that whole experience of going and, and witnessing, seeing not just the movie but the audience and their response was hope. You know, people are not unaffected by this. You know, they're taking that to heart. You know, that could be the kernel of a movement that could really stop this madness. We need to get it stopped. But Peter goes on and says, yes, the movie did have some deficiencies. But what are the film's deficiencies? Back in 2020, Marty Sherwin, Kai Bird, Gar Alpovitz, and I just did a series of international... Oh, and I just want to point out that the people that he's talking about... Gar Alpovitz, we had uh, his words on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the Kennedy speech, and we highlighted a whole show about the Kennedy speech. Yes. He has brought up things that we have been bringing up for months. Longer than that. Yes, absolutely. Actually, years. So, all right, back to Peter. Press briefings and webinars and wrote an op-ed together in the LA Times trying to preempt the discussion about the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings because we knew that the media, left to its own devices, would portray the atomic bombs as necessary. As, you know, and here's the big myth that I find most objectionable. The idea that the atomic bombs were not only necessary, they were actually moral. Uh, and and it's come out again. Dennis Overby, 
the New York Times physics and astronomy reporter, wrote an article about the Oppenheimer movie in the New York Times, and he said, the subsequent bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended the war against Japan in 1945. That myth, the fundamental lie at the heart of the American empire, the heart of American exceptionalism, that the atomic bombs were not only necessary, that they were actually moral, because the only alternative was the U.S. invasion, in which, according to Truman's memoir, a half million Americans would be killed in the invasion, as would millions of Japanese. So the atomic bombs were not only necessary, they were moral. They saved lives. It was good that we did it. Uh, now, that view was not only expressed by Dennis Overby, it's expressed by Obama. When Obama went to Hiroshima in May of 2016, I was brought over there to do commentary by Japan Public Television, NHK. And if you remember Obama's comments there, I had urged Obama to go from the day he got elected. I was glad that he went. The only previous president who went was Jimmy Carter, but that was after he was out of office. So it was right that Obama should go. But what he said there was terrible. He says this opens by saying, on a bright sunny sky in 1945, death fell from the skies. Well, death didn't fall from the skies. The United States dropped an atomic bomb, and then three days later dropped another atomic bomb. But when he goes on to say the crucial lie, he says, World War II reached its brutal end in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nonsense. But we get that Susan Rice, former National Security Advisor, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2019. And she says, following D-Day, my father was sent to the West Coast to prepare for deployment to the Pacific Theater. He was spared combat by President Harry Truman's decision to drop atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, provoking the Japanese surrender. We get that in Mike Wallace's award-winning book, in 2020. We get that over and over again, this lie that the atomic bombs ended the war. Well, actually, you know, the there are there is some truth, uh, not to that. But if you go to the U.S. Navy Museum in Washington, D.C., the official museum, they say now, uh, the vast destruction wreaked by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the loss of 135,000 people made little impact on the Japanese military. However, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria changed their minds. We know this. We know this from the Strategic Bombing Survey. We know this from the War Department report. We know that seven of America's eight five-star admirals and generals in 1945 are on record saying the atomic bombs were either, either militarily unnecessary morally reprehensible, or both. We know that Admiral Leahy, who chaired the meetings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was Truman's personal chief of staff, said that the atomic bombings of a thoroughly defeated Japan put us on the moral level of the barbarians of the Dark Ages. He said we went on to kill as many women and children as we could, which is what we wanted to do all along. We know that Eisenhower was opposed to it. MacArthur, who wanted to use atomic bombs in Korea. MacArthur says we could have ended the war in May if we had told the Japanese they could keep the emperor.
we knew that the Soviet invasion, the, the United States had been urging Stalin to come into the Pacific War since the day after Pearl Harbor. But Stalin was fighting the Germans, right? Most Americans don't know, but you guys probably do, that throughout most of the war, World War II, the Soviets were fighting over 200 German divisions, while the US and the British were fighting 10 between us. And there's a reason why the Soviets lost 27 million. There's a reason why Churchill said the Red Army tore the guts out of the Nazi war machine. But there's also a reason why most Americans believe that the US won the war in Europe, not the Soviets. And so, uh, but, but at Yalta in February, Stalin agreed to come into the Pacific War three months after the end of the war in Europe, which means uh, August 8th or August 9th, exactly when the Soviets did come in. And American intelligence started saying back in April, the Joint Intelligence Committee, the Joint Chief of Staff, that the Soviet entry into the war will convince all Japanese that feudal, that continued resistance is futile. Said on several occasions that the Soviet entry will end the war. We knew that. Intelligence knew that. The military knew that. Truman knew that. Truman goes to Potsdam, has lunch with Stalin on July 17th. He goes back and writes in his diary, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finny Japs when that occurs. He writes home to his wife, Bess, the next day. The Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the kids who won't be killed. The Truman also knew that the other way to speed up Japanese surrender was to change the surrender terms, let the Japanese know they could keep the emperor, who they considered to be a divine being. Truman refers to the, uh, says of the intercepted July 18th telegram, calls it the, the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. The question for historians is not whether we had to use the bomb to avoid an invasion. There was no chance, as Eisenhower says, we were going to have to invade. The question was why we used it and who was the real target. And that's what the film doesn't go into. In fact, uh, as the, the Kremlin interpreted, the Soviets knew better than anybody how desperate the Japanese were to surrender. Because in mid-May, the Japanese war cabinet decided that their best chance for getting better surrender terms was to try to get the Soviets to intervene on their behalf to get them better surrender terms. So in early June, uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Hirota meets with the Soviet ambassador in Tokyo, Malik, on several occasions. Malik writes back to the Kremlin, the Japanese are desperate to surrender. Stalin knew this better than anybody, in addition to the spies that he had in the Manhattan Project. So he knew what was going on. And when the US dropped the atomic bombs, the Soviet leaders interpreted it as if they were the target, not Japan. And this was a very big factor in speeding up and catalyzing the Cold War, as the Soviets knew that they were engaged in a, in a struggle. But the scientists also knew that. And in fact, the Frank Committee at, at MetLab in Chicago issued a report in June saying that even if we have the bomb, we shouldn't use it because it's going to lead to an uncontrollable arms race 
between the United States and the Soviet Union that could lead to mutual destruction. So and the spokesperson for the movie who says that is Leo Zillard. Now, the, this is a movie that spends 45 minutes building up to and showing the Trinity test in Almogordo. It spends 45 seconds discussing the scientists' opposition to using the bomb. And in fact, it has Oppenheimer refuting them and saying, what we have to do is not pass this petition around. And he urges them not to sign the petition, and he blocks his circulation. But he also says that what we have to do is use the bomb to end the war. That's the lie that the that the movie develops. Uh, and and then it has secretary. It has a very important meeting of the interim committee on May thirty first. The real topic in that meeting was how do we inform the Soviets of the our use of the bomb so we don't lead to an arms race. That gets papered over. The dialogue is hard to understand. It goes by so quickly that even I, who know that whole thing and have read it, uh, could hardly follow it. And uh, and then they have Stimson, after saying that he honeymooned in Kyoto, so they shouldn't drop the bomb on Kyoto. Then he says uh, that the Japanese are fanatics. The only way to get them to surrender is to wipe out their cities. That was Simpson's position was actually much more complicated. But the message of the movie is that the bomb was necessary to avoid an invasion, which would have killed half a million American soldiers, as well as millions of Japanese, and was therefore moral. Nolan does raise the opposition on three, I think it was three separate occasions, but it goes by so fast and so incomprehensibly that I think anybody watching it would have missed it and it gives the final word to Oppenheimer and the defenders of the atomic bomb. One other thing that Oppenheimer says, one of the one of the other things that I think is terrific about the movie is from the very beginning, it mentions Teller's obsession with the thermonuclear bomb, with the super bomb, which Teller wanted to focus on as early as 1942. There's a, so Oppenheimer was asked by Arthur Holly Compton at Met Lab in Chicago to organize a group of what he called the luminaries, the most brilliant scientists, to go out to Berkeley and to think about the implications of the bomb. And when they're doing that, they they put up equations that make them realize that the igniting an atomic bomb could ignite all of the nitrogen in the atmosphere or all of the hydrogen in the oceans and blow up the world. In the movie, Oppenheimer goes and discusses it with Einstein. That's a fabrication. In reality, they st stop the project. Oppenheimer rushes out to Northern Michigan where Arthur Holly Compton was vacationing and tells Compton about this. And Compton's response, which the movie doesn't have, is brilliant. He says, it is better to live in slavery to the Nazis than to bring down the final curtain on mankind. You know, and that's the moral judgment that the movie needed to make uh, and that, that Nolan does understand. Uh, but then Oppenheimer goes back. They, so they halt the project. Oppenheimer goes back to Berkeley. Beta and Teller do more calculations, and they decide that the chance of blowing up the world is three in a million. And they decide, well, those are good enough odds. 
And so let's go ahead with the project. But even when they do the Trinity test, some of the scientists are so terrified by the fireball, the explosion, the magnitude of it, that they thought they did ignite the, the atmosphere and that the world was over. So that's what they were dealing with. But at that May 31st meeting, some one of the military leaders, one of the political leaders asked Oppenheimer, what's coming down the pike? And Oppenheimer says that within three years, we're likely to have weapons between 700 and 7,000 times as powerful as the bomb that destroys Hiroshima. Seven, so we knew what was coming. We knew that the world that we created, when Truman is at Potsdam on July 25th of 45, and he gets the full briefing on how powerful the bomb test was, he writes in his diary, we've discovered the most terrible bomb in history. This may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. Truman decided to use the bomb and gave the order to do so, despite the fact that he knew and said on three separate occasions that he understood he was beginning a process that could end life on the pro on the planet. And he used the bomb in exactly the way that he was warned would most likely trigger the nuclear arms race with the Soviets that could do so. And he does. And we're very lucky to have survived up to this point. But to think of the insanity, there was Project Sundial. And in 1954, we actually had congressional hearings that were testified, and which leading scientists testified about the prospects of building a single bomb that would be 750,000 times as powerful as the bomb that destroys Hiroshima. That's the madness. That's the madness that Dan Ellsberg tried so hard to convey uh, and that we still have, we're still living with today. But the movie does raise that to some extent. And the movie does get this discussion going. But a couple other things that we need to mention. Before the movie was made, the group in Los Alamos, atomic bomb survivors, begged Nolan to show the first victims of the atomic bomb. That was the half a million people in New Mexico and surrounding regions who were affected by the bomb. The scientists warned Groves and Oppenheimer beforehand that the bomb's radioactivity and fallout was going to make an area 40 square miles uninhabitable and could contaminate the people living in that area. The Trinity test was terrifying. The, the mushroom cloud was seven miles high. It affected an area 150 miles. There were a half million people within that range. The fallout fell for days. People played in it. They ate it. They didn't know what it was. They decided not to warn people. Then they put out cover stories. And even after the war ended, they decided to lie to the people in New Mexico and Mexico and Texas and uh, Arizona who were victims of it. Uh, in fact, they ended up, the fallout ended up falling in 46 states and a few countries. Uh, so this was, but, but they decided not to do that in the movie. They could have done it. Even a sentence or two, they didn't want to, how to add more. They could have added a couple sentences warning 
Groves and Oppenheimer about the fallout, which they understood and took precautions against the scientists uh, without taking up much more time or adding a lot more complexity. But they chose not to do that. And that was a mistake. The other thing, I just did an interview a couple of days ago with Mainichi Shimbun, the important Japanese newspaper. And as you might know, there's a lot of controversy in Japan because the Japanese victims are not shown. And the movie is not opened in Japan, partly for that reason, because of Japanese criticism of it. Now, that's a more difficult question, because it does show in Oppenheimer's mind, after the scientists are cheering when they get the news about Hiroshima being wiped out, and Truman's comment aboard the USS Augusta, and he says this is the greatest thing in history when he found that Hiroshima had been wiped off the map. And the scientists are cheering and calling out Oppenheimer's name. And Oppenheimer goes up there and is saying all these, you know, great things about how great it was that we did, that we succeeded in the bomb project. But then they show what he's thinking and they show the, that he's imagining his audience being incinerated and vaporized and carbonized and, you know, these images that they put in Oppenheimer's mind. But the reality is they show no images of people in, in Japan which to the Japanese is unacceptable. It's a complicated question in a three-hour movie. You can't do this in a way that trivializes it. You can't do it quickly. You know, could they have done more about the victims? Yes. But even the screenplay I wrote for, for, for Oliver Stone about somebody who was truly a hero in American history, Henry Wallace, who gets left out of this movie. I was glad to see how negatively Harry Truman is portrayed. But there's a lot of history that Americans don't know. That Harry Truman should never have been president. That Harry Truman, you know, that America's vice president between 1941 and 45 was Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was in many ways a visionary. Henry Wallace was the second most popular man in America. But the party bosses wanted him off the ticket. Gallup released a poll of potential voters on this open, the day that the Democratic Party convention opened on July 20th, 1944, asking them who they wanted on the ticket as vice president, potential voters. 65% say wanted Wallace back as vice president. 2% said they wanted Truman. How the F did Truman become the vice president? and then take over when Roosevelt dies on April 12th, 1945, instead of Wallace. It's a very important story that Americans don't know and we could do. Uh, but had Wallace become president or had Roosevelt lived longer, there would have been no probably no atomic bombings in Roosevelt's case, certainly in Wallace's case in 1945, and very likely no Cold War. But that, okay, you can't do that. But even in the script Oliver and I did, we couldn't really do Hiroshima because I guess my script was four hours or five hours. But, you know, it's very hard to do that. But they could have done a lot more about the victims. They don't even bring Nagasaki in till an afterthought toward the end of the movie. So that's also some of the deficiencies. My friend Kai Bird has seen the movie five times. And... He, and he said that every time he watches it, he learns more. He understands more of the dialogue that he missed. And he picks up layers of nuance that he missed. 
I only saw it once. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I really need to see it a couple more times to get it in all of its complexity. But I think those are a lot of the important issues uh, that to throw out there that we can talk about, about the film's strengths and its weaknesses and the opportunity it gives us in order to educate people about nuclear history and nuclear war and the insane dangers that we live with today on an ongoing basis as we're fighting now a new two-front Cold War, different from the first Cold War, but equally insane and equally dangerous. Thank you, Peter. Uh, that was really a brilliant and insightful historical overview um, that um, we appreciate very much, and we're, we look forward to sharing that with uh, with others. Um, and I should mention before we uh, move on that uh, Peter will also be pre presenting at the Veterans for Peace National Convention next week, uh, specifically on Saturday afternoon, the 26th. He'll be uh, part of a panel on basically on U.S. war preparations uh, in the Pacific aimed at China and North Korea. He'll be on a panel with K.J. No and Simone Chun facilitated by Ann Wright. And I know it's going to be a very powerful panel. Of course, uh, that buildup in the Pacific also very much threatens nuclear war. I'm sure Peter will be addressing that. And that's another uh, strong reason to register for the Veterans for Peace National Convention and join us next weekend. It's it's, it's online, and it's three days uh, this year, uh, 20, Friday the 25th through Sunday the 27th. And you can go right to the veteransforpeace.org website to register and find out more about that convention. So there it is. And just to give credit, that last speaker is Jerry Condon, the uh, facilitator leader of the No Nukes group and previous president of Veterans for Peace and uh, also involved in the Golden Rule Project. So you've heard Jerry before. So Harvey, thinking about the deficiencies that Peter just uh, went over, well, Peter Kuznick is just talking history. And yes, the movie missed out a lot of, missed out some very important things. And I wonder, in retrospect, but I wonder if, if Nolan would have thought, with the way the movie is attracting attention and holding people's attention, like you said, there wasn't anybody leaving the uh, the theater. I wonder if he would have thought, you know, if I can hold the attention for three hours, maybe I can hold it for three and a half hours. And then he could have included some of those historical things that Peter mentioned, like some uh, pictures or some reference to uh, the damage in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Or bring up that um, that Henry Wallace would have and should have been president instead of Truman. You know, the downwinders. I guess there's another movie about downwind that's out on prime right now and the downwind uh, documentary i'm like interested in seeing i understand martin sheen is the narrator yes he has a long history with uh, anti-war movements in the u.s you know overall i think um peter kuznick did a wonderful job of discussing oppenheimer and bringing up the good and uh and and the deficiencies and the deficiencies i really think it was just part of well maybe 
Nolan didn't think he had enough time. Didn't want it to go over three three hours. Maybe left something on the cutting room floor. Yeah, who that, knows? But, but I mean, by his own words, since the film has been released and in interviews with him, he has made it clear that he had hopes that this film would help to build the movement to abolish nuclear weapons. Then he yeah. he saw the threat as very real, and, and it's not young, uninformed, you know, the uninformed youth who are missing the point. It's it's the New York Times and the Washington Post and Biden's inner circle who seem to think nuke, nukes no big deal. Every day, I uh, walk into this little office where we where I record, and I see Jack Kennedy, and I say thanks because mm-hmm. he understood in 1962 and yeah. we and, and unfortunately we don't have jack kennedy we don't have anybody that comes close right so now his, his words from his speech in 1963 his uh warnings we should do all we can to, to get that out there on every possible media platform yep more people are aware of that just to make sure everybody hears that's listening soundcloud.com and search Veterans for Peace. We have a whole show dedicated to that speech. And the date would have been the first week in June. Well, to finish up the show with a song, I'm recommending, since Peter Kuznick mentioned the movie about Joseph Rotblat, uh, Strangest Dream, uh, there's a song, Strangest Dream, which is actually in the movie. And this is a different version, but it's it is Joan Baez. So want to take a listen to that? Yeah, sure. All right. They 